A Noble Experiment by Robert P. Fitton. Episode 1 Is Mankind Ready? Is Mankind Ready? The hoopla is over, the crowds have subsided, and humanity seems to be getting back to its normal pace. For many years, man has reached out to the stars with a great anticipation to seek things more noble than himself. Last month's landing of an alien spacecraft in the tiny village of Tobin Falls, California, has brought hundreds of years of searching into a crystal clear reality. We now know that life forms exist in the universe. You would not know that fact, however, if the event had not been captured on film to preserve posterity. Without this evidence, some tiny bronze beings walking down the ramp of their spaceship with their human captives the incident might have been viewed as another in a long line of recorded UFO sightings. It would be dismissed as the talk of lunatics and the teller of tall stories. Dr. Olin Van Grunkel has been castigated as both a lunatic and a tall storyteller for over 10 years. Over this period, he has earned the loyal following of many people, but he has aroused the disdain from those in the scientific community and the national press. The events at Tobin Falls changed that enormous credibility void around the doctor's work. It vindicates his tireless and unheeded effort to a humanity that was not able to listen. In a larger sense, will mankind listen now, some 60 days after the alien spacecraft returned to the skies over Northern California? Proclamations have been made by this race called the Eurasians to what they call the supreme and mighty master of the universe. This statement will affect mankind for eons to come in every aspect of his culture. One, however, has to put all the proclamations in perspective, despite the acceptance of the alien words by those prominent in our society. Perhaps we should stop and have time to ponder the meaning of the landing and ask ourselves, is mankind ready? July 15th, 1963. Ventura, Indiana, July 16th, 1963. The money windows under the grandstand of the Ventura racetrack had lines all the way back to the far wall. People, their emotions brewed to the limit, seemed impatient as they waited to place their final bets of the afternoon. Post time was just minutes away. Bill Brady, a heavy-set man in his late 20s, received his ticket and stuffed it into the inner pocket of his light blue suit. Holding onto his matching blue hat, pinned with a red tag marked Press, he ran past the lines of wooden telephone booths along the far wall. He pushed the door back and straddled the opening as he fumbled for a coin. Pulling out the coin, he dropped it in the slot and dialed the operator. Brady had just turned 29, although his tired gray eyes, he thought, seemed to add to his years. His little hat pushed his wavy maple hair outward, and his two-day beard stubble gave him a shabby appearance. Through it all, however, he seemed vibrant, a man driven in a hypersense towards something indescribable. Operator, he said quickly before she could answer. I'd like to place a call to Mr. Tom Jackson, Chicago Enterprise and Times. The number, please, said the almost automated voice. I was about to give you the number, ma'am. It's MR39994. My name is Bill Brady. One moment, please. 
One moment, please. Mimic the hurried Brady. He dug into his coat pocket, passed the tickets, and yanked out a cigar. The line to Chicago was still ringing as he lit the cigar. I have a collect call for a Mr. Thomas Jackson from a Mr. William Bundy. Will you... Brady! Brady! He squealed with the cigar planted between his teeth. From a Mr. William Brady. Will you accept the charges? Yes, yes. Put him on, operator. Go ahead, Mr. Bundy. Oh, I love you too, sweetheart. Tom, Tom, I'm out at Ventura. Ventura? About time you call, Bill. You'll be covering Von Grunkle tonight, right? Sure, sure, I'll be there, Tom. I've just got to win something big tonight and my ass is grassed. And I mean grass, buddy. Bill, when are you going to smarten up? You're overworking yourself, you're in debt, I don't know how much. But you should cool it for a while. I can't cool it, Tom. I have to recoup my losses. And I'm going to nail that S.O.B. Von Grunkle. All I ever wanted was the story, Bill. You're going after him like he's some common criminal. Listen, Tom. The strain showing in his squinting eyes against the telephone booth glass. No, you listen. The man has the film footage. Ten people were aboard that ship. No one has changed his story. Now, how do you explain that? Phonies, phonies, phonies. There are no aliens, Tom. No phonies, Bill. You question them. You can't break their stories. The FBI and every other damn man in government can't break their stories. For God's sakes, Bill, they're telling the truth. Scolded Jackson as Brady rubbed his temple from the stress. Jackson continued his lecture. They were abducted by aliens for six months. They've been on that spaceship traveling around in outer space. Oh, bullshit. Bill, you've been covering Von Grunkle off and on since 57. You've come close to charging him with sexual misconduct, bribing people to say they saw aliens, and a dozen other things, Bill. I've kept you on this because I've doubted Von Grunkle, too. But that's all over now because of Tobin Falls. You're going to stay on this. You will report it and not editorialize it. The line went silent as Brady fumed inside. Sure, Tom, anything you say. You're meeting Colonel Coffey out at the lecture, correct? Bob will be waiting for me like he always does. Get his opinions. He's in charge of the Air Force's UFO division. He must have ideas. No more speculation, Bill. Right. Personally, but I want to be fair to your readers. And maybe after tonight, you can come back to the city. You sound all pent up. Right. Take care, Bill. Drop by and see me when you get back in town. Right, repeated Brady as he slammed the receiver down. He's a damn phony Tom. I know it. I can sense it, he said even after he had hung up. A damn phony, and I am going to nail this guy. He reached into his pocket for some more change, still shaking his head in disgust. Perspiration dripped from his forehead, but it wasn't from the summer heat. It was his obsession with Von Grunkle, trying to prove him a fraud that, in a way, almost rivaled his gambling madness. In six years, he hadn't even come close to uncovering anything substantial about Von Grunkle, and it was because of this fact that he pushed himself all the harder toward that goal. Hurriedly, he dropped the coin into the slot but the dial tone was smothered by the annoying blast of a transistor radio. 
He turned, gritting his teeth, and set his eyes on a little girl. Her blonde hair was unkempt and dirty, and her clothes were faded. She was no more than twelve, but her blue eyes had an optimistic quality. You a reporter? She asked, looking up at his badge. Hey, kid, turn down your radio, okay? Ordered Brady as he turned and dialed the operator. Operator. Operator, I'd like to make a collect call to Mr. Alvin Hoffman, Chicago. Number is MR60004. That you, Mr. Bundy? Brady. Letting the operator's needling get the best of him. Will you shut that thing off? He shouted at the little girl who had not turned down the radio. Shut off what, Mr. Bundy? Not you, sweetheart, said Brady, finally putting the telephone to his chest. Look, kid, run along. Beat it. I'm making a call, okay? Brady put the receiver back to his ear and a low-keyed voice answered the telephone. Yeah. A click call from a Mr. Bill Brady. Yeah. Go ahead, Mr. Brady. Al, Bill Brady, he said as the music was still distracting him. He stuck his head outside the booth and raised his dark brows. The little girl mimicked his expression and slinked along the booths. But then she walked back, staying far enough away to listen. Al, Al, you still there? Yeah. Al, I just put another hundred down here at Ventura. I need more. I need a bigger bet. I know my credit's a little shaky at the moment. Shaky? You're halfway to the bottom of Lake Michigan as it is. Just another thousand. Just one more. Just one more grand, Al. Come on. I've got a sure thing here. What's the sure thing? Asked Hoffman. Number seven, excess profit. In the tenth. To win. Bishop's given five to one. You still want it? Yeah, that's good. Good, good. As for right now, you owe Sydney over 30,000 past allowances. No, I'm going to win tonight. I'm sure of it. And that would bring me down to 27. Or up to 33. My luck's changing now. Come on, it has to, rationalized Brady, the sweat raining all over his face. His heart beat faster and faster, as if he were trying to outdistance his reckless feelings. Yeah. I'll be at the best, Weston. Yeah. Goodbye, Al, said Brady, but there was no answer. Hoffman had hung up. The little girl, realizing this, scampered from the booths. Breathing at an unusual rate, Brady hung up the telephone and looked at his watch. It was exactly 5.53. His facial muscles tensed and all his problems advanced upon him. Bishop, the man to whom he owed money, was powerful enough to remove Brady from existence on the planet with a nod of his head. Von Grunkel, his editor, and the racing all seemed to be too much for his volatile mind to handle. His head began to feel light. So light, it was as if his brain could float freely from his head. The grandstand windows and the money windows were overdubbed with a mirage of intense, twinkling green light, and suddenly he lost control. Sinking into unconsciousness, he hit the bottom of the booth with a thud, but was unaware of the impact. Slowly and very gently, he felt himself float freely above his body. He looked down at his own sprawled figure on the floor of the booth, but only for a few seconds. Then the entire scene rocketed away from him or he from it. He could sense a spinning growing faster with each moment as he passed into nothingness. Vacant and alone, he went on for minutes out of control. And in a second, the spinning ceased. 
and the cool nighttime breezes struck his face. He was sitting alone, quite comfortably, in the saddle of a horse. Yet the body of the man in the saddle was not his body. He was entrapped within another personage, unable to bring any volition to this mustache rider. Under a starry desert sky, the rider turned in the saddle toward the sound of advancing hoofbeats in the night. To his rear, close to a half mile, was the vague outline of several wagons, the stretch canvassed, highlighted in the starlight. And Brady could see, through this man's eyes, a young rider moving closer on a fast horse. And then it ended, all at once. Just as dramatically as he had been thrust into this remote, nonsensical scene, his consciousness shot away like a bullet. He passed into the void, turning and twisting once more. Several minutes, he perceived, passed by before he could see the grandstand area come into view. The spinning stopped and he gently floated over his body as if he were returning from another dimension. Then he awoke. He sat up with a jolt, moving his head from side to side and breathing uncontrollably. Grabbing onto the telephone booth, he struggled like a fighter who didn't want to be counted out. He looked at his watch for perspective, only to be dumbfounded. Seconds had passed, not minutes. He tried to shake the whole experience from his head. It remained, however, lodged in his brain, a hangover of this vivid dream. He gazed at his watch once again. The cigar was smoldering on the floor. He stomped it out, picked up his hat, and headed for the concession stand. Walking swiftly, he didn't even look back, afraid that his unreal feelings might be lurking back there, ready to snatch him back into the desert. Give me a hot dog and a large beer, he said as he reached the counter. His breathing had slowed, although he was still haunted by the plain fact that all the pressures were finally causing him to lose his mind. That'll be 50 cents. Huh? asked Brady, looking up from the counter. 50 cents, Mac. Brady handed him a dollar bill. Part of the hundred he had won in the third race. Took the hot dog and beer. Keep the change, he yelled, stuffing the hot dog in his mouth and spilling the mustard and relish over his already soiled suit. He scurried up the ramp, swishing the beer around the cup. After his little journey, he thought the race might have started. Reaching the top, he looked out at the track, saw he had plenty of time before the race started. It was Brady's routine, no matter where the track, to stay out of the grandstand. After all, he reasoned, the people in the grandstand were only small betters, those who couldn't take the enormous risks that he did. He would station himself below in the asphalt area, adjacent to the rail. In this way, he could catch the horses as they raced by him. He settled himself next to the chain-link fence at the final bend of the track, finishing the beer and throwing the cup on the tar. His thoughts were clear now, maybe an act of survival as he blocked the blackout from his consciousness and he nodded his head as if everything would go away. Excess, he mumbled, as he put the point of the pencil on number seven. Ahead of him at the starting gate, the horses were being secured in the numbered stalls, and the race was about to begin. The crowd was anxious now, buzzing, as Brady lit another cigar, puffing sporadically as he looked around the track. It was the starting bell that riveted his mind back to the race. His horse, number seven, led the group as it left the gate. All right, excess, all right, excess, come on, you horse, come on, come on, he yelled, thrusting the racing form into the air. Good, 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 he called to the jockey with the yellow number seven on his back. Keep him back, keep him back. Brady was utterly enthralled with the race. His concentration, however, was broken by the untimely arrival of the little girl in a transistor radio. 
Tonight on the Big Charlie Show, here we're gonna give you a sweet budget. Start with a new song called Patches. Yeah, oh, all the way down to the late great Buddy Holly and his true love, Peggy Sue. Okay. Said Big Charlie as the song began to play. Brady's nose crumpled into a knot. The little girl had her eyes on the race and couldn't see the pulsing rage in his eyes. You! Shut that thing off, he said loudly, pausing as he thought about his emotions in the blackout. I won't get upset. Listen, please, turn it down. I've got a race going here, please. She looked up at him, the late afternoon sun striking her light blue eyes. Seeing the fanatic, almost paranoid look in his eyes, she turned down the radio. There. Happy now? Look, kid said Brady as he looked across the track. I've got a lot going on this race. Yeah, I can see that. Brady stood on his toes. Come on, excess. Come on, excess. 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 How much you got? What? What? How much do you have on excess? Everything, kid. I've got everything on excess, he said, gritting a cigar. Then you're trying to make money. No, kid. I do this for my health. I'm just a crazy man. He added as he looked across the track. He's dropping back. Oh no! No, you damn fool horse! Make your move! Make your move! Make your move! He pleaded as the horses rounded the far turn and he advanced toward them. Doesn't look too good, she observed. Shut up, kid! said Brady amidst the fanatic screams of the crowd. Make your move, excess! Make your move! Pandemonium racked the stands. Everyone seemed to lose their sanity as the little girl folded her arms across her dirty yellow jersey. She seemed unaffected, surprisingly calm as the contagious madness spread around her. Brady, by contrast, was jumping so wildly he thought he'd leap right onto the track. As the horses kicked up the red dirt and rounded the final turn, Brady turned and actually began to chase after the horses, waving his arms as number seven dropped farther and farther back. Excess! Excess! He screamed, holding the cigar in his hands. The horse was not even in a place in the top three. Damn you! He cursed, throwing down the program. Damn you, stupid horse! He repeated as he stomped on the racing form. He staggered over the bench behind the grandstand, shaking his head vigorously as the emotion swelled to his head. He had dropped yet another thousand dollars to Mr. Sidney Bishop of Chicago and added more pressure to his life. I'm going to go crazy, he said to himself as he sat down on the bench. Crazy, he repeated, but the words began to echo. Green sparkling light again covered the whole area around him. People in the stands, blue sky and the observation windows above the grandstand. No, not again, no, he said as his words reverberated as he felt himself rising above his body. Once again, he had passed out and he fell forward off the bench. Like a car flying into a high speed from a dead stop, Brady zoomed away, and the track retreated from his vantage point. He was in the void again, spinning toward an indefinite horizon with a definite destination. The nighttime breezes brushed against the rider's face, and the stars shined brightly overhead. Brady wanted to know exactly where he was, longing to communicate with this man, but he was trapped, and there was nothing he could do about it. The dusty cowboy pulled his horse around as the other horse approached from the rear. Boy, what the hell are you doing up here? Asked the rider in a slow drawl. Ain't nothing wrong back there with them folks. 
No, sir, Mr. Hank. Them wagons is just fine. Then what is it? What's wrong? Come on, speak up, boy. We gotta cross the salt flats now. We ain't got time for this bullshit. I was gonna ask you if I could ride up here with you for a while, said the boy. Yeah, boy, I guess it's all right. Your pa and your ma know you're up here? You ain't lying to me, boy, are you? Even you lying to me, that mama yours is gonna lie into me again. No, sir, I couldn't sleep with them wagons moving, really, Mr. Hank. The ruddy rider adjusted his wide-brimmed hat and gave his horse a gentle slap. They rode over the caked remains of the large salt bed. The distant mountain peaks were just becoming visible. The night breezes had picked up the salty smell, trapping it on their clothes and skin. Salt makes me sick, Mr. Hank. Well, Fort Hall's still a ways away, boy. Can't cross these flats too soon enough. I gotta act more like a man, I guess, and take it, said the boy. How old are you, boy? Fourteen, replied the boy. His voice was just changing. Almost a man? Yeah, almost a man. They rode along before they spoke again. Pa says you was in the war, Mr. Hank. Yep. Pa says the war was glorious. Brave men, he says. Courageous. Glorious, said the boy, trying to impress the rider. Wall weren't glorious, boy. Pa says ain't no better test of a man than fighting a wall. I can think of better. As soon as I get old enough, I'm gonna join the cavalry. Might even kill some engines. Well, your pa's a crazy nut, said the rider as the hoofbeats clapped against the flats. What? The rider thought for a few minutes about what he had seen during the war. Then he looked down at the boy. You ever see a cannonball sail clean through a man's gut, boy? And his guts are as thick as southern molasses, just oozing out his belly. And watch all life come oozing out with those guts. Well, no, sir. Ah, uh, handsome men and pretty women trading off to your glorious war. Their faces made ugly by the crack of the enemy rifle. Those scars might heal, boy, but it's what's up here. He said, pointing to his head. That stays wounded. Someone shot you in the head? Memories, you damn fool. That's not what Pa says. He said... I don't give a damn what your Pa says, boy. I've seen men with their legs sawed off, lingering for weeks in pain and infection, dysentery, gangrene. Lives of pain, boy. Ain't no glory. Why do men fight more, more, more. The fighting makes a man a man. Fighting makes a man an animal, said Hank. They fight because they have to have more money, more rifles, more land, more power. When you get more, it's only natural you want even more, said the rider as he became upset. He brought the horse to a stop and took his hat off, wiping the sweat from his brow. He then straightened the hat back on his head with his upper lip curled. He looked down at the boy. You listen to me, boy, and you're probably going to learn the hard way anyway. It ain't fighting that makes a man strong. Sure, one man may be a little quicker, a little stronger, a little smarter. It's holding back them animal ways that makes a man strong. Living like men, not like animals. You got that, boy? I don't like that kind of talk. And your pa's got a lot to learn, boy. The writer and his words left Brady. His world was dark now, a rotating continuum, as the minutes passed by. He tried to call out, but the words had no force. 
Finally, the brighter world of the racetrack was coming into view. He slowed and floated over his unconscious body. The sound of the transistor radio and the same song playing was the first thing he heard. He popped his head up. Are you all right? He asked the little girl as she stood over him. How many times did they play that song? Once. They just started. She said, why? Which means, oh, God. Are you sure you're all right, mister? You look all white. It's only a horse race. No, I was spinning into some other time and place, I said Brady, staring across the track. Yeah, sure. I'm losing my mind. I am. I'm losing my mind. He looked down at his watch, and Sydney's going to kill me. This can't be happening. It can't be happening. Get control of yourself, Brady. Who's Sydney? She asked as Brady stood and began walking toward the ramp which led below. Never mind, kid. Now go along, he said, motioning her back. But then he stopped and looked directly at her. Wait a minute. What's a little girl like you doing out here anyway? They always take me out here. Can I go with you? I'll be good. What are you, nuts? Bill Brady's got enough problems without some little kid tagging along. You go tell your parents they want you, he said as he headed for the ramp. But they don't. They beat me, she said, following Brady under the grandstand. Come on, kid, I'm not going to fall for that one. Do I look stupid? Well, Brady turned with a smile and then he became serious. Look, kid, everything will work out for you. I've got places to go here. Please? She called as he walked away. I'm sorry, he said without looking back. He had gone no farther than ten steps when a small woman in a pink dress and a large man with ripped overalls stomped by him. Here you are, you little brat, he heard the woman say to the girl. Brady stopped when he saw the lady pin the girl to the wall. He ran back up the ramp. Hey, you! You! Leave that girl alone! Yeah? said the bulky man who was at least six inches taller than Brady and outweighed him by fifty pounds. You mind your own business, he said as he picked up the little girl. Brady wanted to do something, but he knew this man was just waiting for a provocation. But he could never take this man anyways. They headed up the ramp and Brady turned to face his own immediate problems. Dr. Olin von Gronkel was speaking at the university and Brady had to cover the event. He had to, more importantly, come up with a scheme to raise a large sum of money quickly or face the uncertain consequences of being confronted by Sidney Fisher. Join us next week as a noble experiment by Robert P. Fitton continues. This has been a production of Fitton Theatre of the World.